Hi everyone, welcome to the Years of Lead Pod and part two of our episode on the Sindona Affair with journalist Joshua Stevens, who grew up in Sicily and is currently in Thailand reporting on some fascinating Buddhist festival. If you missed last episode, go back and check it out. We left off talking about the mob-linked Sicilian accountant, Michele Sindona, and his patsy, the banker, Roberto Calvi, and how they took the Italian financial industry by storm through carefully executed pump-and-dump schemes organized with a portfolio of shell corporations and fraudulent bank loans. We just introduced the obscure and totally creepy character of Licio Gelli, who takes control of a renegade Masonic lodge called Propaganda Due and turns it into a mechanism for his immense personal ambition. Without further ado, here's part two of the Sindona Affair. So, like, like Calvi, there was no reason that they shouldn't get along, because like Calvi, Jelly is a committed fascist during that fascist epoch. He volunteered in Spain to fight against the Republican forces, he fought for Mussolini in Albania, and then against the Allied advance in Italy. So he, like, fought with the Repubblica Sociale Italiano under Mussolini, uh, instead of going over to the Allies after the armistice, which is hardcore. Um... Yeah, when it looked like the Allies were going to win, when Germany occupied Northern Italy, at some point after the armistice, Jelly flips sides, and remarkably, he joins the communist partisans in Pistoia. Wow! So I mean, literally, just cynical to the core. Yeah, he's a survivor in a sense. Uh, and that's yeah. and that really is reminiscent of Calvi in a sense because you know Calvi goes over to the socialists after the war, um, but what it shows everyone obviously is that even more than a militant fascist, Licio Gelli and Roberto Calvi are both hardcore opportunists. Um, so yeah, why wouldn't they get along? There's no place in post-war Italy for opportunists like the Freemason lodges that are proliferating in the absence of Mussolini, who was an anti-Masonic guy. Because, you know, the fascists had put down the Freemasons, uh, which they believed represented a challenge to their absolute power. But Freemasonry had a long tradition in Italian history dating to the insurrectionary 1830s. The Freemasons were, like, pretty well-known for, like, being part of the liberal revolutionary organizations in the early 19th century. Yeah, yeah. And um, and also, you know, a lot of them got sent to prison. They started mixing with uh, crime groups. And their kind of weird Masonic rituals sort of infused with the, the criminal elements. And they kind of, like, influenced sure, each other. all the... And that's, like, the beginnings of the Camorra. Sure, Kimura. all of that. Um yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. It's like an interesting history. Most Freemason lodges are just like for people. It's like a mutual support club for capitalists. It's like you go there because you, ha you yeah, have yeah, a yeah. factory and you got to get a supplier and there's suppliers at the lodge. There's lawyers at the lodge. There's accountants Holy. there. There's politicians. You get you got to register all your shit and do all your bureaucratic bullshit. And like the Mason's well, notab good Notably, you know, people. my I remember as a teenager, you know, my mom ran the information systems department on this base 
And so I routinely got dragged to dinners with like uh, high-ranking naval officers and uh, basically salesmen for uh, like representatives who were former military but were now in the civilian world who were reps for like Lockheed and McDonnell Douglas and things like that who were basically, you know, hawking information technology to to the navy right and and my mom was a good person to know and um those guys would talk openly about themselves and their peers being masons like it was uh not so much in the sense that it was like you know mapping some conspiratorial network as much as it was you know a country club like it was it was it was where they made connections and, you know, where they did exactly what Sindona has been doing this whole time, right? <laughs> Climbing like, the ladder. You know, find, finding the right people to leverage and lean on and, you know, positioning themselves as potential fixers and things like that. Um, that shit was very, very real within the sort of military industrial complex as I experienced it as somebody sort of like, you know, as a teenager just living right up against, you know, like that was very very real i remember being kind of shocked when my mom told me you know like oh yeah like that admiral is a freemason and you know that guy is a freemason whatever and i was just like this can't be you know as dan brown-esque as it seems right <laughs> like um but like in reality it, it it very much was this sort of connective tissue less you know obviously not a conspiracy or some sort of like hierarchical pyramid as much as like this connective tissue that connected the civilian capitalist sort of milieu to the institutional structures that the military represented. Right, right. My, my granddad was in the British military and uh, uh, he retired to Portugal and started up a marble company. I think they had like a quarry and, you know, like a marble factory and stuff like that. And I think he joined the Masons for like a few years. He was in the Masons in in, uh, Portugal. And then he left because he was like, didn't really help that much. You know, it was he thought it was kind of silly and like it wasn't really kind of what, you know, people want to crack it up to be or whatever. Anyway. Uh, In Italy, you know, Freemason lodges proliferated because, you know, they can give you connections, like you said, a a connective tissue. But there is one Freemason lodge that is like uh, pretty, pretty, pretty sketch. Uh, (laughs) And it's called Propaganda Due. Okay, so um, Licio Jelly joins Propaganda Due. And he becomes a business leader, spends time abroad in Argentina, schmoozing with the elites and becoming friends with Juan Perón, who is a great friend to post-war fascist networks. Um, and this lodge stemmed from the Propaganda Lodge originally, which in- initially was like the Masonic Lodge for the elite, right? So Propaganda Lodge was where the elites would come and confer and be able to get away from, you know, the plebeian Freemasons, like the lower class Freemasons. Right, right. And then there's a secret lodge attached to the Propaganda Lodge called Propaganda Due. Okay, so this is like a kind of like an interesting, weird, secret attachment to the elite lodge. And in Propaganda Due, members don't necessarily know who other members were. And some insisted that they had no idea that they were even members at all. Although that's a little bit 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure if that's not an excuse that they tell the so, wife. So they're claiming like somebody added them to the roles yes. and without their yes. knowledge. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, it is. It does sound like somebody who's like, I don't know, wife. Like, how did the strip club, you know, get on the receipt for you know our our credit card? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's that's there, there, there's definitely that element of it, right? But then like, you think about the existence of people like Sendona who made themselves on the premise that they were really reliable and dynamic and agile fixers. And you could totally see someone of that flavor of cynicism putting people's names on the roles of certain things as a way of demonstrating to somebody that they're trying to pitch that they're connected to the right people. Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, they're going to pitch and say, look at all these people I'm connected to. And then second of all, they're going to uh, single out people who are part of this lodge and they're going to say, oh, did you know that, you know, Vito Michelli is also one of your friends, one of your fellow lodge members? Like, do you, right. do you want us to expose this to the public that you're in this like secret formation with Vito Michelli, like the, the head sure. of the secret police? You want you want your investors to know about this kind of stuff? So it would be a double edged sword. It could help them. Uh, in one way, and then it could also help them extort people in another way, because they always have this sort of like sword of Damocles over the, at everybody's head, which is, you know, we can just expose you, you know. Um, I think that the, I think that this piece like this, this element of these sorts of institutional interactions and, and the ways that particularly with regard to like organized crime, I think that this is a sorely underappreciated and underexplored element of Trumpism and the Trump era. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there, there are moments, you know, like before Michael Cohen flipped and stuff where, you know, you had these cases where there were people who, you know, were involved in or witnesses in investigations or lawsuits or whatever against the Trump organization or against Trump and his, you know, real estate empire or whatever, who, you know, were were muscled or intimidated out of participating or whatever. And their people gave these accounts of getting these phone calls from, you know, people who they believed to be his bodyguards or whatever. And in some cases, it was probably Michael Cohen, right? But like, you have these moments where, for instance, the current DA in New York is, you know, backing down from this grand jury and like pumping the brakes on it and whatnot. And you're just like looking at the situation <laughs> and you're like, there's absolutely no reason for this to be happening. Yeah. Right. Like, like his own fucking prosecutors are quitting in protest because they're just like, there's no reason to be doing this. Right. And almost the only explanatory mechanism there is that there's some house of cards shit going on where somebody has photos of this guy's hard drive that's full of kitty yeah. porn or like whatever, yeah. right? Like, yep. and I really think that like the interplay of that and uh, far right Mussolini esque sort of politics is really sort of sorely underappreciated and underexplored not just from a an historian standpoint or for understanding current events but also in terms of like 
strategic opposition. Like, I feel like this sort of understanding is critical for undermining or undermining the advancement of these sort of interests is understanding who they have in their pocket, who they have dirt on, who in the oppositional sort of milieu is vulnerable in that way and who can be exploited in that way, because this seems like it has been a centerpiece of these sort of historical developments from the fucking jump. Yep. Yep. And and Jelly isn't actually uh, at the head of the lodge yet. You know, he's like making his way up the chain, but he's making these important connections through the lodge. And in 1969, he brags that hundreds of army officers are joining his lodge to make Italy into something like the colonel's government that took over in Greece in 1967. So he wants to overthrow the government of Italy and uh, he's able to actually play an important role in the abortive black prince, Junior Valerio Borghese coup of 1970, before the whole thing is called off. Uh, in point of fact, he was going to personally arrest the president of the republic, social democrat Giuseppe Saragat. Um, so it's clear that he had really close contacts and an organizing role within the broader scheme of what was called the strategy of tension. Um, that said, you know, he's also drawing heat within the Masons. Like I said, like most of the Masonic lodges are for, you know, entrepreneurial stuff and meeting people and shit. And so during a 1973 general meeting of the Grand Orient of Italy, which is the Freemason network to which P2 belonged or P2, um, Jelly is called out as a quote, brother who has not only had a sad fascist past, but who still lives in the conceptions of a doomed regime to the point of inviting the brothers who belong to high hierarchies of national life to work to ensure that Italy has a dictatorial form of government. So, I mean, people have figured his whole <laughs> grift out by 1973, but he's still able, right. he's still able to move forward with Sindona, with Calvi, although it seems like most people who are anywhere near power know exactly what these guys are up to. It's just that, you know, things play out this way in Italy in the 70s. It's like everybody knew, for example, Edgardo Sogno is plotting a coup because he's openly saying, hey guys, I'm plotting a coup. You know, he's doing it in all these meetings. There's all this stuff from the military right. intelligence, you know, reporting back like infiltrators and stuff being like, yep, Sonia's plotting a coup. And most people just let it happen until, you know, the last minute. And then, you know, everybody's like, what the hell? And it's like, yeah, because everybody. Well, again, you, you have that in, in present day American politics, too. Like people love to fucking trot out these quotes from people like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham and stuff in advance of Trump winning the election and sort of saying like, this guy is going to take down the party. He's fucking toxic. He's like the worst human who's walked the earth. And then once he's in power, they become his fucking lap dogs. And <laughs> you, can on, you can only fucking assume that, I mean, these are people who, you know, were vociferously opposed to him and predicted the very things right. that you're sort of seeing play out now, right? And yet they were the ones shielding him from from any sort of, you know, uh, malady or accountability or, or, you know, any sort of law. Yeah, yeah, any sort of consequences, right? And you almost have to assume that, there's something at play there, right? Like, because that's how he has always operated. He's always operated as a yep, mobster. Yep. 
So yeah, the other thing, the other thing about this time and place in Italy is that like the boom, the economic boom is basically over and nobody really wants to admit it and nobody really wants to assess what that means. And so everybody's still riding on the very peak of the bubble and it's bursting and they don't necessarily want to believe that it's over, but the most cynical people are the ones who understand exactly what's happening and that the bu the bubble is really bursting and they're the ones like vultures who are sweeping in and trying to just grab as much as they can while everybody's still got the champagne out. Yeah, I mean the the most ruthless and cynical of any of these narratives is always going to be uh the least in denial about what's happening on the ground exactly exactly and you know these guys are ruthless they want to overthrow the republic um they want to install themselves basically as the dictators they want to get rid of anybody who's going to stand in their way and um you know nullify all the checks and balances everything like that uh and and jelly jelly's propaganda do way offers a pretty convenient place for these types of extreme reactionaries to really vent their frustrations and plot this path forward against what they viewed as a national deterioration, which is ultimately going to pitch Italy into the Soviet camp, eradicate Catholicism worldwide, and put Italian industry at the service of Moscow's commissars. So for a lot of these... No, is that, is that, is that a legitimate fear, that deterioration? Is that something that they legitimately fear, or is that simply the kind of boogeyman that they're trotting out to sort of like mask the the sort of machinations that they're setting in motion in the background it's got to be both i think i think that part of it is like a very sincere belief in the moral degeneration of italy but at the same time you know these guys are the ones driving it i mean they're the they're the worst of the bunch so i think i think that there's that's part of it but it's also like it's it's complicated because I think of these people as like kind of, kind of psychopaths in a way, right? They're like, they're really living this totally disconnected life. And, you know, do they believe in the occult ceremonies that they're uh, issuing forward? I mean, right. somewhat, maybe, yes, no. Like they believe in their own power, kind of, sort of, like... Like you said, think about Bannon. Like, does Bannon believe in, like, this reactionary Catholic stuff? I mean, uh, it seems like he kind of does, but it also seems like, you know, he is an egomaniac who wants to be responsible for the salvation of the world and so on and so forth. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't believe any of, of the, uh, the real values underscoring it because... Um, you know, he supports Trump and Trump is a sort of ultimate decadent. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he's, he's incredibly pragmatic. I just think of it in terms of like, you know, uh, the sort of manifestation of this sort of like, I don't want to say ideology because I don't think he, you know, much like a lot of these people, he doesn't have much of an ideology. But when you think of like the degeneration of Italian society contemporarily, right, I trace that back less than half a century, but nearly half a century. The name that you think of immediately is Berlusconi. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was responsible, you know, like 100% more than anybody else in Italian society. The man was responsible for the sort of like cultural degeneration of of popular culture in, in Italy. And, and yet he is both like the sort of face of of industrialism in Italy mm. and and also the simultaneously the face of right politics in Italy and uh corruption right? yeah and so like you have to you have to wonder you know because it, and I don't think that he's at, at, at all a unique case right like whether we're mm-hmm. talking about Italy or we're talking about anywhere so I think that, like at any moment I almost assume that in any historical moment where you have people leveraging this sort of like cultural or moral degeneration argument, you've got a Berlusconi somewhere in the now, mix, it, right? Literally, right. in this case, I mean, he was a member of Propaganda Due. Right. Of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, he, course was, right? he was. Mean, mean, meanwhile, meanwhile, when I was a teenager, uh, you know, back then we you know didn't have the internet or anything like that. But you had two different television systems, right? You had like. Um, you had an American and, and European television systems. Mm-hmm. And so a, an American television couldn't pick up network TV signals in Italy. So I didn't have access to Italian television in my home, but a lot of my friends did. And the fucking show that everybody talked about at school was this show called Campo Grosso, which was ostensibly a strip poker game show. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I'm not 100% <laughs> certain that Berlusconi owned the rights to that show but like every other fucking tits out show on italian television was run by him i remember a sicilian girl i dated being at her house with her family watching a show at like dinner time that was like some kind of variety show and at a certain point i had no idea what was going on but at a certain point she just said that woman's gonna take her top off and (laughs) On cue, the woman took her top off. <laughs> and it was like, and this, for me, like, this is what I think of when I think of Berlusconi, right? And so, like, in these oh, moments yeah. where you have people talking about, you know, the moral degeneration and, and using this as a sort of, like, potentiality that has to be avoided by way of some sweeping authoritarianism or whatever, um, I always just think, like, there has to be a Berlusconi somewhere in the mix, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just remember uh, just a few weeks ago, I think it was, Berlusconi was on a TV show. I forget who the host was, but uh, the host said some, like, stuff about, like, oh, I saw you, you know, like, uh, talking up this, you know, young girl backstage, like, good job. And Berlusconi's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the host is like, did you get her number? And Berlusconi's like, of course. It's like, this dude's, like, yeah. 80. Yeah, <laughs> he's, I mean, like, in his 80s, and he's, t- like, bragging I mean, you go on back national and you watch television that video. about, like, trying to pick up chicks, you know, backstage. Totally. Kind of disgusting. And if you go back, you remember, I think it was 2005, 2006, I can't remember. It was one of those years. Some fucking lunatic um, smashed him in the face with, like, a small metal statuette. Uh, like just threw it at his face at point blank range um, at some rally or something at some appearance he made and it was caught on video because there were news cameras going when it happened and when he joined TikTok recently and it was announced my first thought was that fucking moment was made for TikTok (laughs) because he's like he's like like he he was either 
out the sunroof of his limo or getting out of his limo when this happened. And in the footage, you can find the footage on the internet still. You can see, especially if you slow it down, his face almost melts off when this statuette hits him because yeah. at that point, which is, you know, almost 20 years ago, he had had so much fucking work done yeah. that, like, when it when this thing hit him, his face just, like, fell apart. <laughs> like, it almost looked like it was melting off. So, like, we're talking about a guy who has artificially sort of kept himself TV ready for the better part of three decades, and he's still sort of presenting himself as this playboy and like whatever dude the guy's a monster yeah, he's not great yeah no so he's part of propaganda due he was younger at this time in the early 70s um and there are some pretty heavy hitters who are members as well but it th- it's easy to look at the roster of propaganda due and to think that it's actually like a coordinated assemblage hierarchical and orderly you know determined to you know, exercise these big coups that were happening at the time. But when you look closer, a lot of people don't f- quite fit, you know, in this, like, like Giannadelio Maletti was the counterintelligence chief of the military intelligence, the seed. And the head of the seed was a dude named General Vito Micheli, uh, who had a very close relationship to Nixon's ambassador, Graham Martin. And it was... Giannadelio Maletti, who actually investigated Vito Micheli and brought like his subversive dealings to light in 1974. So um, those two guys being part of the same subversive secret lodge is actually really interesting and says a lot about like what you were talking about earlier, this kind of like cynical interplay of trying to get as many names as possible on the list, you know? Yeah. Because like those guys aren't really working very well together. Uh, and it seems like they're not really involved in the same coups. <laughs> if they are involved in coups, they're not involved in the same ones. And then other people who are... Am I, am, I mis- am I mistaken? Wasn't there a moment like that with Alec? Where, like, there were, there were revelations that, like, kind of uncannily progressive companies or figures from companies mm. were involved with Alec, and they that got publicized and they had to step away and back out of it. Am I remembering that incorrectly? Like, yeah, I mean, it must've been like 10, 15 years ago, but I, I remember like it being this sort of exposure of basically class loyalty and class alliances uh, within this, that was at stark odds and in contrast with this sort of like value presentation mm. of you know ostensibly progressive entrepreneurs or progressive capitalists or whatever yeah. i don't i don't i don't remember exactly who it was but it was some I, I have some vague memory there was something on the order of like finding out that like ben and jerry's <laughs> was involved with alec or something like that you know like that kind of yeah. thing yeah so you know there's like there's a lot of weird sort of combinations here and then the other thing that's pretty conspicuous about propaganda due is the names that it didn't include so like big kind of figures in the big coups that were happening and the plots that were taking place in the, in the 60s and 70s, like Amos Spiazzi, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, Giuseppe Aloia, Francesco Nardella, Luigi Cavallo. A lot of these guys who played like really big roles in the subversive movement, they're not on the list at all, you know, and um, it's interesting. Like there's a lot of people who are like doctors and lawyers, people who are fascists and, you know, generally really sleazy. But um, 
you know, to say that propaganda due is like this, like egg that's hatching and like creating all these coup plots. And it's like, this is the central node of this entire like scheming ecosystem of Italy at the time. It kind of misses the mark. There's overlap for sure between propaganda due and the coup plotters, but they're not like the same networks, you know, they're, it's like super complicated. There's this like crazy renegade Freemason launch uh, run by Licio Gelli, uh, where Michele Sindona is a member and Roberto Calvi. Um, and then there's like this thing, there's like a parallel seat, like a military intelligence that has different hierarchies and different chains of command than the official military intelligence, right? And then there's a nuclei per la difesa dello Stato, which is like this kind of um, uh, organization that was sprouted out of the parallel seed and included other military figures around 1966, you know? So these are all like different organizations, kind of, so some more conceptual, others more solid, um, that are coexisting at the same time, and there's overlap, but it's complicated. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly true of the contemporary fascist movement in the United States. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. QAnon is not the Oath there Keepers, is not the Proud Boys, is not the Three Percenters, is, is yeah. you know, like, yeah. there's an incredible overlap there. And, you know, uh, a rotating cast of cartoon characters like Roger Stone in the Exactly. Well. And you also have, like, like on January 6th, right? You have like Trump's council, the White House council, who's like running around like a chicken with his head cut off trying to subvert the coup. And then on the other hand, you also have these like whack job QAnon people like General Flynn who yeah. are like intriguing behind the scenes with Trump apparently um along with the oath keepers and the proud boys and stuff so there obviously there's like the white house networks that are official and then there's like trump's networks that are like semi-official and so like you yeah. know um it's complicated and you can't really like combine the two as like this like fundamental yeah it's a singular a singular yeah. force there's a there's a sort of dialecticism yeah, to it exactly so anyway back to the story we have roberto calvi and michele sindona and efforts to take over Italian finance through the Catholic sector with the help of discrete networks of powerful po political and economic leaders connected through the Pedue Lodge. They're doing this by systematically taking over Italian properties, by overbidding, using money loaned from their own banks to shell corporations acting in coordinated fashion like sharks, and then bidding up the shares in their new companies through fraudulent investments. But their aggressive activity alarmed a lot of people in Europe, so they set their sights on the United States. Calvi sets up his own bank in the Bahamas called Cisalpine Overseas Bank, and he gives the rank of chairman to the new head of the Vatican Bank, Archbishop Paul Mar Marcinkus. And he is like this really tall, strong American who's been with the Vatican since the 1950s. He impressed his Vatican bosses during a summer job at the Secretariat, and they ultimately sent him to Bolivia as a diplomat. He went on to do jobs for the Pope, like translation services during the meeting with LBJ in 1965, and he physically defended the Pope from a knife attack in Bolivia in 1970. So he's like this old linebacker dude, and he's like the top guy at the Vatican Bank somehow. And he's also friends, ding, 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 with Nixon's man in the Treasury, David Kennedy. 
right? David Kennedy, the guy who runs the biggest bank in Chicago, Continental Illinois, and, you know, worked with Sindona to take over Franklin, uh, Franklin National. So in 1971, um, Nixon makes Kennedy the U.S. ambassador to NATO. So we're talking about some pretty high up people here that Sindona is working with, that he's like in with. And uh, spoiler alert, Sindona somehow managed to grab not only Franklin National, but also shares at the Watergate Hotel. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. course. Why not? Why not? So anyway, as I mentioned already, Calvi got in with the Vatican Bank through Sindona, who was connected to them through his earlier efforts climbing the ladder at Banca Privata Finanziaria. And don't forget that Sindona also took over Societa Generale Immobiliare, which was losing the Vatican money. Uh, so he put himself out there as the savior of the Vatican's finances. Sindona and Calvi were also probably helping Marcinkus rise up through the financial hierarchies of the Vatican. And now Marcinkus is going to look out for them, right? So they're, they've got like a triumvirate here that they've formed through the Vatican Bank, Banco Ambrosiano, and Sindona's entire empire of shell companies, the whole house of cards. So um, when Marcinkus deposits money into the Banco Ambrosiano on loan from the Vatican Bank, Calvi makes sure to set the interest rates for payment back very high. So, so Calvi's basically doing Marcinkus a solid by saying Banco Ambrosiano is going to pay you back in spades when you loan money, right? Um, so that's a special favor that he's doing with the Vatican. V- corrupt dealings are going on here. Um, and But at the same time, it's Banco Ambrosiano. They have a whole stature and history of working with the Vatican. And this is, you know, dignity for them. So their shareholders aren't going to say anything about it. In return, Calvi and Sindona are going to use the Vatican Bank relatively freely to transfer money and shares for use offshore while avoiding exchange controls and maintaining secrecy. So the Vatican wasn't the only place that could do this. There's also Lugano, Luxembourg, but it offered a special patina of respectability, right? Nobody's going to ask you questions because you're with the Vatican Bank. Um, so in 19- which is ironic, right? Because the Vatican Bank, just when you say the words, the first thing you think of is just incredibly cynical, <laughs> corrupt sort of financial dealings, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is, this is a big part of why, right? Um, so, I mean, they did some really shady stuff. In, in 72, they worked out a complicated deal in which Sindona would sell one of his companies to Calvi in exchange for Calvi's opportunity to purchase a new bank from the Vatican, uh, the Banca Cattolica del Veneto, which they'd received during the Societa Generale Immobiliare deal. Um, and the benefit to the church would be keeping the affiliated bank within the traditional Catholic circles of the Banco Ambrosiano, while Calvi got to get a new jewel in his crown. So the company that was sold then bounced around different holding companies in Luxembourg, owned possibly by Sindona, Calvi, and the Vatican Bank, and they're all getting big commissions every time they sell it to one another. You know, it's just totally, like, wrecking this this you know bank um yeah 
1973, Salvi and Sindona are freewheeling big shots, but international conflict is about to just completely break them. Uh, Sindona had already wrongly bet on the U.S. dollar, which gets devalued at the start of the year. But then you have the outbreak of war in the Middle East as Egypt and Syria, joined by nearly a dozen other Arab and allied countries, launched a surprise attack against Israel during the holiday of Yom Kippur. And to cut Israel off from foreign support, the oil cartel OPEC hit Western oil consumers with an embargo, causing a shortage of oil supply and increasing prices across the board. As we know now, because of all the inflation, when you have very high oil prices, you have very high inflation, so the value of the dollar declined even more. On the other hand, the German mark increased, which was the exact opposite of what Sindona was hoping would happen. So he invested in all these dollars. The dollar, you know, sinks, and uh, the German mark does really great, and that really screws him. So he really needs money, right? Um, And it's a really big issue because... Mariano Rumor gets into prime minister, uh, I think, in July 1973, and his and he's a left winger. He's like center left in the Christian Democrats, and he appoints as minister of treasury in Italy a real hard ass named Ugo Lamalfa. And Lamalfa is like also a dude you don't mess with um, for a variety of reasons, but he's part of the old guard of the Republic. All these guys really are the, the politicians that I'm talking about. Um, and he calls Sindona and Calvi golpistas of the stock market. You know, uh, <laughs> he doesn't, he hates them. He hates them. They hate him. They think he's, you know, got to stick up his ass. He kind of does. Um, and, so to get a hold on all the speculation that's happening in the Italian financial markets, Lamalfa increases the interest rates, making it a lot more difficult to pull off a lot of the wheeling and dealing involving borrowing more and more money. Yeah. Right. So he's For putting sure. some constraints on currency borrowing, which is really not going to help Sindona and Calvi because Sindona needs real money because of all the U.S. dollar inflation. You know, that's going to really bite him on the ass unless he has, you know, something to back up his network and he doesn't. So um, what's he going to do? Right. He needs to start injecting money uh, ASAP through new shareholders. So the scheme here that he does uh, is pretty much what he always does. Bid way high um, for often for his own companies. Um, in order to drive the price up and get other people interested and then make hella bank. Uh, This is very illegal, um, but it tends to work for him. But here he stumbles across another roadblock uh, put up by LaMalfa because LaMalfa refuses to allow Sindona to inflate a million lira company of his into a 160 billion lira firm for the obvious purposes of serving as a piggy bank for another in-house purchase of a different Sindona company. So, you know, uh, Sindona's like, you know, why won't you commit, why won't you commit obvious fraud with me by looking the other way or whatever? But Lamalfa's not really that into it anymore, partly because Italy is, you know, the Italian economy is not doing so great. And he, like you said, it, if they pull the rug out entirely, they'll destroy the Italian economy and cripple the international financial industry. 
Um, but maybe they can tighten the screws a little, you know? Yeah, and slow his roll. Yeah. But Sindona's well-connected, and he's able to secure a $100 million loan from the big Catholic Banca di Roma. Um, but his own banks are fa still falling to pieces. He's got $100 million that he can put in, but they're not uh, going well. Um, he's not able to pay back the loans that he'd given out to his shell companies. All that money had been spent on other property acquisitions, which inevitably enriched Sindona and Calvi, but did little else. So he's driving down pretty much everything that he invests in. This is also something that happened in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. You had all of these kind of financial moguls just buying up all of these industrial uh, sectors, like yeah. whole industrial sectors, yeah. and just running them into the ground. Um, so, yeah. Um, so the interest rate's so high, uh, his banks need payment, or he's going to go into repo. So he tries merging his banks into a new Banca Privata Italiana. And this is his real last-ditch effort. This is what he puts all of his energy into. This is what's going to save him. And it goes belly up within eight months. So, so now the cops are knocking at his door. He's got all of these promissory notes, basically. He's got all of these debts. He's got all of these debts. He's got all these books that say he's got lots of money. So where the fuck is it, right? Um, in the fall of 1974, right. Sintona just picks up and he moves to Taiwan, which has never been a central hub for the international anti-communist movement or reactionaries of any type, you know. Taiwan. Anyway, <laughs> um, so so he moves to Taiwan because there's no extradition treaty with Italy from there. Um, and the day before he moves there, the day before the warrant on him is issued for fraud and falsification of his balance books. So he must have known uh, that the warrant was coming through. He got tipped off and he fled, fled to Taiwan. Within a couple of weeks, the U.S. side of Sindona's arsenal is declared completely insolvent. That's Franklin International. Wow. Yeah, Franklin International. Wow. Franklin International is busted. And this is like one of the biggest bank busts in U.S. history. And it happens overnight. You yeah. have to admire, though, the chairman, president, and senior vice president of Franklin. They ended up getting charged uh, in jail. Because they simply pretended that $7 million in losses had actually been $79,000 in profits. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and it's, it's, it's 30 years, no, 50 years ago, $7 million was worth about three times what it is now. So about $21 million in losses for Franklin Bank out of Long Island. So extremely normal stuff you can do with ledger <laughs> ledger books these days, from what I hear. Um, anyway, after disappearing to Taiwan for a while, Sindona reappears in a luxurious pad overlooking Central Park, claiming to be a victim of a, quote, witch hunt by economic Puritans. Meanwhile, his other European ventures... I mean, I'm not even sure what economic Puritanism means. <laughs> right? It just means not pretending that $1 is like a hundred million dollars yeah yeah um and then getting your your mob buddies to like 
shoot whoever argues with you in the legs. <laughs> right. So, yeah, meanwhile, uh, his other European ventures like FINA Bank and Switzerland are being closed down one after the other. As for the Vatican's losses, by 1983, when the full nature of the entire scandal had all played out, more or less, their losses were estimated at somewhere between 30 to $300 million, which, again, in today's money, would be about $900 million, like almost a billion dollars. Almost a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, so, so by 1975, the price of oil is high, the economists are making austerity cuts all over the place, interest rates are soaring, and to top it all off, the guy who's been siphoning millions and millions of dollars out of the Italian economy is finally caught. The stock market takes a pretty bad nosedive in Italy, especially the companies that are tied to Calvi. Uh, and while Banco Ambrosiano is losing, just hemorrhaging shares... Supposedly, rumors start to spread that the historical bank uh, of Milan's Catholic aristocracy is really incurring significant damages on the inside. Um, there's rumors uh, um, that Banco Ambrosiano might be sinking. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that causes runs on banks and other kinds of devastating phenomena that can yeah. strike financial institutions and the whole industry. Um, so Calvi's trying to make up for this massive crash as the Italian courts convict Sindona in absentia because he's in New York at this point. So, so Sindona's fucked. He's, he's been convicted in an Italian court. Um, and but the, and there isn't an extradition treaty between Italy and the United States at this point. I don't know if it's still valid if you're hooked into the mob to that extent. <laughs> like uh-huh. the fact okay. that yeah. the, the, and he still has you know uh, uh, Kennedy from Continental Illinois watching his back. You know, um, right. So you know, Roberto Calvi. Meanwhile, had gone from being this sort of inscrutable but powerful figure operating in the shadows of Catholic Italy's financial world to being one of the most notorious names in Italy, while Sindona had become internationally associated with the economic crisis of the mid-1970s vis-a-vis the total collapse of Franklin National. And with their extremely dangerous connections and associations with the Vatican, things are about to get much much worse for Michele Sindona and Roberto Calvi. I mean, they are like the second part of this is just a complete downward spiral of. Yeah. I mean, this is just a fucking like avalanche at this point. Yeah, exactly. And it was an avalanche that basically took all of Italy with it, which is the source of huge amounts of rage for the second half of the 1970s because the key takeaway from this episode after all of that is to recognize that in 1975 public trust in the right wing of the christian democrats and the catholic side of the financial system had also collapsed you know you know people had been suffering from the onset of the financial crisis in 1973 there's inflations cutbacks austerity all those things they're adding to the original problems of the partiocracy and the bloc democracy and the scandal surrounding Sindona and Calvi and the material impacts of their fraud embodied what was wrong with Italy for so many people. And as a result, the vote share, of the Italian Communist Party 
which it, you know, it had increased by an average of like one percentage point every election since 1953. Every four years, you know, the big mm. election, and yeah, they, yeah. they would increase like one percentage point, maybe two, maybe point two, you know, give or take. Um, but suddenly, from 1972 to 1976, their vote share jumps up by 7.3 points to 34% of the entire vote. Wow. Wow. <laughs> because of this. Because of this, the, the Communist Party, everybody's just like, I am so fucking fed up. And um, yeah, yeah. the Christian Democrats were holding pretty steady at 38 to 39%, but their perennial coalition partner... Uh, the Socialist Party is foundering at about 10%. And the temptation of the historic compromise championed by the head, then head of the Christian Democrats, Aldo, Aldo Moro, is looking more and more like a complete death sentence for the center right. So. Yeah, because they've overseen this whole fucking debacle. Yeah. Andreotti, Andreotti was like connected to Sindona, pretty easily connectable to Sindona and the Vatican Bank. I mean, he's like, he made his bones being the Vatican's politician. You know, that's why they called him Divine Julio. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so we're, we're talking like mid, late 70s at this yeah, point? 1976 is kind of where we're leaving off here based on the election thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny, you know, if you read, like, uh, Roberto Saviano, um, who's, like, you know, he wrote Gomorrah, right? And Gomorrah has been endlessly mm -hmm. licensed and adapted. It was, you know, this sort of indie film made out of it, and then this sort of, like, Wire-esque series that I think HBO picked up. Mm. Um None of which I've seen the film and I saw like one or two episodes of the TV series, none of which really actually touches what makes that book so profound and so special, which is that Saviano is ostensibly a philosopher, right? Like uh, he comes mm -hmm. out of like mm -hmm. Frankfurt School Marxist stuff, right? And if you read Gomorrah, the chapters often open with like quotes from Hannah Arendt and, you know, Horkheimer and, and things like that. And he basically infiltrated the Gomorrah and, and, and sort of wrote this work analyzing it from a philosophical perspective. And the premise of the book really is that the Gomorrah represents neoliberal entrepreneurialism unchained mm -hmm. like that like if you want a window into the soul of neoliberal capitalism you look no further than the neapolitan mafia mm -hmm. that it is fundamentally an expression of of neoliberal ideology and and that there's nothing else about it that's particularly interesting and that's like I mean, you, if you understand neoliberal enterprise in those terms, that ultimately they are reducible to a thing that looks like the Camorra, then you start to be able to kind of predict and understand the, the sort of operations and the trajectory of how things unfold historically. And 
one of the things like living here in Thailand, because Thailand is basically, I mean, it's, it's statistically as of a few months ago, the most unequal society on earth economically. Um, and it is also the richest monarchy on earth, right? Which makes for a really glaring juxtaposition, right? And I mean, the types of fuck you money that exist (laughs) in this country are, are, I mean, like we think of that kind of thing being like Emirati, right? Like we think of that kind of thing being, you know, a Gulf state kind of, uh, of, of, uh, like institution right but it is absolutely present here and when i describe to people what this place is like i say like it's it's a mafia state mashed up with like saudi light Mm. and because that that really is i think the most like appropriate distillation of it and you know i do like a lot of my work is is freelance work for like startups in germany and things like that and you know sometimes on work calls people be like oh you know how does, you know, living in Thailand with like, you know, the history of coups and, you know, the authoritarianism and in 2020, you know, there was an uprising here, a democratic uprising that um, was ostensibly kneecapped through laws governing, insulting the monarchy and things like that. Um, you know, somebody said to me, uh, does it make you feel, how do they put it? Like, basically, like, do you feel more generous in spirit toward like, Europe and the United States and you know like the sort of freedoms and 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 whatnot that exist there and I said no the opposite because what happens here is what would happen in the United States and Europe if capitalists thought they could get away with it yeah no doubt (laughs) you know like you know all this is is the West all all that what happens here is is the West unmasked Mm -hmm. And and the and the soul of that unmasked, mm. and and I think like the the brilliance of Gamo, of of Gamora and Saviano's work is that he does the same thing with like neoliberal entrepreneurialism and says like the soul of this is the Gamora, like yeah. at the end of the day like that's what this is, mm-hmm. and you see that throughout you know this whole like thing that you've researched is that like ultimately these people. You know, there's a whole chapter in, Com- in in Gamora where he just does this sort of case study of the Kalashnikov and and how and, and its origin and why it was built. It was built to be cheap and durable and, and all of these sorts of things. And then how it beca- and, and because of that, it became the go to fucking firearm for the criminal underworld right, right. And, 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 and and whatnot. And he actually ends up going to the home of the guy who invented it, who was still alive at huh. the time. And he sits in his fucking living room and he says, like, how do you feel <laughs> about the fact that this thing that you invented, uh, and I think he invented it in the service of the Soviets. Yeah. Um, he, he says, like, how do you feel about the fact that this is essentially killed millions of people that it has created and wrought so much death and carnage and destruction and the guy basically says like i made a tool like like he makes this like really cynical economically reductive argument of like i made a tool and that tool you know like it's like the like the efficiency of the market pushed it to the the top right like it's 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 nobility and it's it's moral weight 
are evident in the fact that it proliferated, not in terms of its consequences or how many people it's killed or like whatever. It's that its popularity, the market has determined that this was a, a, a morally noble thing. Yeah. And that sort of ideology, I think, is <laughs> like at the core of this arc, but it's also at the core of like, you know, the things that like Naomi Klein was documenting in the shock doctrine, right? Um, whether it's, you know, the coup in Chile or, you know, the invasion of Iraq or how post-Katrina New Orleans was rebuilt or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Is that this like, this ideology is like, well, if it, if it were such a bad thing, it would not have proliferated. And it's like, yeah, but behind the scenes, you've got <laughs> these fucking incredibly cynical mafioso motherfuckers who are, you know knifing and blackmailing <laughs> and you know engaged in so much fucking fraud and all these other sorts of things and and at the end of the day it circles back to the central argument of Gamora which is that like this is what market economics is unfettered unfettered capitalist growth right it's it, it's actually not not yeah. growth at all because um like you said it with the uh, also with the partito uh del cemento the economy boomed when they were actually constructing infrastructure and they had, you know, the money and um, the economic program, the politics to actually implement that. But the more that um, they relied on the industrial system, the Italian, let's say the Italian ruling class, the more that they relied on the industrial system, the more the workers organized together to you know um try to overthrow the masters and uh they couldn't have that so they implemented all these different rules especially in the early 70s right there was flexibility there was decentralization there's you know all of these different kinds of manipulations of the rhythm of work um in order to disrupt collective organizing and the potentials for big strikes to grind up the entire workday you know um not even big strikes but things that they would call like articulated strikes and stuff like that um so all of the methods that the workerists and the italian new left had had figured out to really fuck with you know the assembly line to basically sabotage things without getting anybody into trouble um those were all like understood and uh, transformed into neoliberalism by, you know, the people who were running yeah. the industrial market. And the thing is that uh, part of it was just complete deindustrialization. Part of their adaptation to all of the organizing happening in Italy was to move those jobs away, to start to outsource, you know. Um, and so the militancy of the factory workers in Italy and the adaptations of the new left uh, in the late 60s and early 70s was part of a dialectical process through which neoliberalism was actually invented and partly innovated in Italy. Um, and so obviously by the early 70s the reason why calvi and sindona and jelly are actually a thing is because 
like I said earlier, like the economy is actually kind of faltering. Nobody wants to believe that this is so because they're paying so much taxes. They're dealing with all these strikes. They know some progress has to be happening somewhere, you know, but it's not. It's not because the space is emptying out and it's people. It's yeah. people like Calvi and Sindona who are like the repo men of capital and they're just like basically taking they're sucking all of this money out because there's nowhere really for it to go necessarily i mean yes the state could have like you know actually done something you know about the the system that was basically collapsing into this free market wildness uh this unregulated kind of situation where anything goes and so on and so forth but no they adapted to it they adapted to it because you know that was uh it was either that or just basically give it up to the you know the factory workers and the demands of the left and they couldn't do that and they wanted to sabotage even their own party in order to fuck all that up right they they sabotaged the yeah, center yeah, yeah. left they sabotaged the center left because they thought it was going to be creeping communism. And um, in the process of attempting to control power through the center-right, they really kind of robbed the entire country. And this is where you get Berlusconi, right? Berlusconi is direct, like, uh, what, uh, progeny of this entire situation that's happening. And of course, so is Mani Puliti, which he was helping to drive, right? Because all of these, yeah. all of these politicians, they know what's happening. They know what's going on. They're corrupt as fuck, and they're dealing with it the way that they do. And even in the early 1970s, prior to the failure of the Franklin National and Sindona's conviction, people like uh, Feltrinelli's GAP, Gruppi di Azione Patriotica, um, formed, you know in the early 70s to be kind of like a Tupamaro's guerrilla group. Um, mm-hmm. They had been tracking and stalking Sindona in the streets because they knew, even they knew that Sindona, even as Feltrinelli sold Banca Unione to Sindona, his own like guerrilla group, urban guerrilla group, was stalking him and contemplating kidnapping him. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. nuts. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think back to, like, you know, just recent days, there was, you know, uh, there's been all this um, sort of furor over uh, the head of the World Bank sort of, like, giving this interview where he he dabbles in climate denialism, right? Like, he, he kind of plays with, mm. he says, like, well, I'm not sure if I, you know, believe the science or whatever. And, you know, there's been this massive backlash. You know, one of the first people to speak out against him was of course Al Gore and like the thing I remember mm. Gore most for was right after the World Bank and IMF protests that we organized in 2000 after the Seattle uprising he was lobbying uh, actively vocally I remember watching the hearings live where he was lobbying for unrestricted trade relations status for China and China's entry into the WTO, and that this was going to be a force for democratization and like all these other sorts of things. And right. even then, as an idiot 22 year old, I was just like, 
who in their right mind believes this? Like, nobody <laughs> believes this. Like, this can't, you know, the man saying these words can't possibly believe this, right? And of course, you know, 20 years later, whatever, 22 years later, how's that panned out, right? And then here he is coming out being like, oh, well, you know, the head of the World Bank is like engaged in climate denialism. It's just like, motherfucker, like you forced the door open. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you were in the fucking front of the pack opening that door, yeah. right? And so all, I mean, I think all along these sort of, like, historical arcs, the people with their hands on the levers always know. Like, there's never, I don't think there's a single person whose fingerprints is on the levers of any of these institutions or any of these historical turns who's ever had any lack of awareness about the actual consequences of what they're doing like I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know and I think for me anyway when I look at that I look at that through the prism of of Gamora and like understanding like every single one of these motherfuckers knows that they're engaged in a mafia enterprise like every single one of them knows like you know you had it here in Thailand too like um when uh when vaccines for covid first went on the market and went online at that moment thailand hadn't had any new covid cases for something like eight months like i i got here at the beginning of the pandemic and like from march of 2020 until like december there were zero new cases because they had locked the borders basically and so when vaccines went online Thailand didn't join, was it called COVAX? Was that the, like, the international body, like, the the cartel that all the governments joined to sort of, like, organize the distribution and, and, and purchase of vaccines? Thailand didn't join that. And they didn't order, they didn't place orders for vaccines. And part of the reason was that this company called Siam Biosciences, I think is what it was called, had the, had, had secured the exclusive license to produce AstraZeneca in Southeast Asia. Mm. And so they were producing not just for the domestic Thai economy, but for the region broadly. And so their thinking was, and it was, it was naked as day at the time, yeah. their thinking was, well, we don't really have a pressing situation, so we'll basically backdoor this monopoly for this company, <laughs> right? to produce these vaccines and it'll have no international competition because we won't even be part of the cartel through which vaccines are procured internationally. And surprise, surprise, that company, despite having no history of producing vaccines, was owned by the monarchy. Yeah. And the people who, the, the politicians, the, the sort of progressive party politicians who called this out were charged with insulting the monarchy for calling Jesus. this out. And then, and then the Delta variant struck. Yeah. And by, by summer of 2021, there were people dying in the streets of Bangkok because the Delta variant had ripped through this society that had not been vaccinated. Yeah. And it was because they were engineering this monopoly for this company. And they knew it, yeah. right? Like they knew what they were engaged in. They knew what the consequences could be. And, and I just think like at every turn, where this sort of thing happens, the people involved know what they're mm -hmm. doing. And, and I think that from an oppositional standpoint, there has to be a sort of 
unequivocal understanding of that being the base, that, that this is a mafia enterprise and a, a sort of mafia system, and that everybody with their hands on the plow knows it. And in terms of like knowing one's enemy, one has to know that one is engaged with a mafia. Like that's, I mean, that's the core narrative of what you've just laid out, but I think it's the core narrative of pretty much any sort of analogous instance of, of this is that at the core, this is a mafia enterprise. I, I think, I think, yeah, I think you have, you have people like you have operators, you know, like Sindona and, and the people he's able to basically pwn like Calvi. Um, and then you have a whole host of people who are just willing to, you know, look the other way and live their own lives and they know what's going on, but they're, they're not going to disrupt anything because I mean, look at what, what happened to, 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 um, who was it? Was it, uh, Chiesa who was brought into Sicily as the big sort of anti-mafia, um, uh, sort of the new sheriff in town, Della Chiesa. You think of Falcone. And then there was Falcone. Yeah. 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 Giovanni Falcone yeah. and uh, Paolo, uh, what's his best friend's name, who also got blown up. <laughs> um, I, I can't think of his last name, but, you know, like, Falcone, we read about Falcone in my, like, we had a we had a class in my American school called, I think it was called Host Nation. So we were, like, learning about, like, Sicilian culture and history and stuff. And we read Falcone, I don't know if he wrote it or it was a book about him, but it was a book called... Um, Uomini di onore, right? Like men of mm. honor. And it was about his successful prosecutions of mafia figures and stuff. And so, like, I was, like, pretty immediately familiar with, like, his, what he was doing and, and, and the legacy that he had already established. And then, yeah, I guess it was, like, 92 was when he was assassinated, I think. Um, I was in a like a an entourage it was like a um the base had an office called mwr which stood for it's just like well it was like something welfare and recreation like um but it was like a, a recreation office it's like book tours and was responsible for organizing sort of like just like family stuff and whatever and um they had organized this trip to this sort of like club, like middle class kind of like club med on the west coast of city, Sicily called Città del Mare. And so we were going for this long weekend trip out to this like middle class resort, a bunch of us on a bus. And uh, a number of hours, I want to say like three to five hours after we had crossed the same stretch of highway, uh, Falcone's entourage was blown up. Like we had, the explosives were like already on hand and nearby. Jeez. And people were like fucking scoping out that stretch of highway prepared to bomb him. And we passed through it like hours before it happened. And I remember this specifically because the, the woman who organized it was Sicilian and she was married to an American, I think. Like their kids went to school with me. And her husband had had to stay behind for work or something. And so he left like three hours behind us and we got to the West coast of Sicily and heard the radio reports and we're like panicking because we thought that he may have been in proximity to it when the bombs went off. 
and like yeah that kind of shit was very fucking real it's just like it was like absolutely part of part of the process if you saw something as an american if you saw anything mafia related happen if you saw a hit if you saw anything they immediately put you on a plane and got you out of the country because you were at risk you were a liability like it wasn't there was no there was no negotiation there was no ringling there was no any sort of like checks and balances like and you know people people witness shit and like kids that i went to school with witness shit and they were just put on planes and sent back to the states because the the enforcement of that structure was so rigid yeah i mean and it goes back i mean like so there's when when all of this is coming down with Sindona. Um, there's a magistrate named Giorgio Ambrosili who's like leading the charge of malpractice investigations into Michele Sindona. And uh, and he gets he gets murdered. I'll get into this more in the second part of this. And um, Andreotti is asked about this murder. Like, what do you think about this? And he goes. Uh, Ambrosili se la andava cercando. He basically says, you know, he fucked around and found out. He's like, he was looking yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly what that means. He was looking for it. Yeah. 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 He found, he found, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he found I mean, out. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely was the case. I mean, I remember it being drilled into me. I remember, like, you know, that you don't, you don't mess around with that stuff. You don't make jokes about it. You don't. You don't talk about those people. I remember toward the end of my time in Sicily, this would have been like 94, 95, uh, there were just beginning to be protests against the mafia for like the first time ever. Um, and the way that they got people to turn out was they would stage a, like a rally um, in Piazza Bellini, which is right next to the, the uh, opera house. And they would have free beer to get people to like come to these rallies and and to kind of i guess get past people's inhibitions about you know potentially being killed or intimidated or whatever and i remember like my skater friends were always like let's go to piazza let's go to piazza bellini and get free beer or whatever and i'd be like you guys are not fucking smart <laughs> because like the odds of a murdered out fucking sedan rolling through that piazza and just spraying the crowd <laughs> are real fucking high you know, yeah. because that shit really did happen, yep. you know, and it was drilled into me by like my mom and, you know, people around her that like that shit was real and you didn't fucking play around with it. And I mean, God bless them. They managed to dislodge that some, but like, again, like you, obviously it's not as gross as like outright assassination as much anymore, unless you're talking about like Russia, but like. You know, all of these instances where, like, Trump managed, manages to wriggle free and, like, <laughs> get out from under what... You know, like, the man is just... It's like it's like a... It, it's like Sons of Anarchy. Like, the man is just constantly showing up to his own funeral, right? <laughs> and, like, you, you kind of have to assume that somewhere in that plot are people being blackmailed and being oh, muscled and being, you know, like... It, 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 so to to not think that that fraud and blackmail and this sort of like naked cynicism and whatnot that we associate with mafia activity is not at the core of the very water we swim in is I think to be like 
dangerously diluted and 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 once you and and actually i think a lot of times this is what kind of builds some conspiracy theory ways of thinking because when you when you see the world uh in 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 more naive in rose colored glasses sometimes then when you see um the corruption you know in in very very clear uh uh tones then you suddenly think that you found what you know you found the main you know nexus then yeah the exactly the nexus of global corruption is this thing that i saw you know or that that i that i uh you know saw on youtube or whatever you know because you don't really have a lot of connections to the fact that the world is kind of dark and scary place with a lot of this shit happening and it's not that there's like one big conspiracy over everything that's happening you know it's that there are lots of you know networks there's lots of cartels there's lots of mafia there's lots of corruption among the religious uh and uh business sort of organizations political parties like you know um so yeah it's almost like conspiracy theorists are their main problem is that they're too naive about about power, yeah, 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 yeah. about sure. power which doesn't sure. mean like it doesn't well, mean it, like oh everybody is tainted and you you know everybody is corrupt and everybody is like dark and sinister it just means that you know um uh there's a lot of that <laughs> you know you, did you listen to the the like behind the bastards dollop collab on kissinger at all yeah i listened to that whole thing it was like six six episodes six fucking episodes it's insane right it's like just brain breaking right so dave anthony from the dollop does this other thing with this other guy whose name i can't remember uh it's called i think it's called that west wing thing where they basically re-watch episodes of the west wing and just eviscerate <laughs> them and like and and they and they and they eviscerate them from a political standpoint because they are sort of looking at the west wing as this sort of like signature instance of liberal left ideology sort of telling its own mythology about the viability of bringing a knife to a gunfight mm. that like you know that like the the impetus or the the sort of kernel of good triumphing over evil or whatever is this sort of like being being of a higher moral character and and about like values and about integrity and and not about power and and they sort of say like and i think there's something to this i think there's something really smart about this that is like that show conditioned the attention of entire generation of people who then went and knocked on doors for obama mm -hmm. right and <laughs> Right. And that's where you get all this like hope and change and whatever. And it's about this moral character and about this charisma and about this sort of like lofty oratory and all these other sorts of things. And then, of course, the first thing he fucking does is says, we're not going to prosecute anybody from the Bush administration. 
<laughs> uh, you know, yeah. we're going to forget all of that happened, right? Which, of course, is really the fucking origin point of January 6th, right? Like, you don't get January 6th if you don't have Obama saying we're not going to prosecute, right? Um, because that was that was like the key moment where they saw that they could just keep pushing the envelope, right? But then also you had, you know, the 2008 financial collapse and the bill came due for all these people who went knocking on doors and they had nothing. Mm -hmm. And so you had Occupy Wall Street, right? And I think that there's something really brilliant about the analysis that they, they bring to this one particular cultural thing. Obviously, it's not a singular explanatory mechanism, but it is a sort of like touchstone, I think, which is that like if you understand how power works in these dynamics and you understand that that power owes a great deal to the things that we associate with organized crime and mafia cynicism and whatnot and that in fact the financial system is reducible <laughs> to that sort of logic and ideology then you understand that you don't beat that strictly with moral character and charisma and being a better person than the other side um, that you actually have to think about power and building power and how power works and how you exercise power and I think that you know even throughout my own history of being involved in social movements and the things that I took for granted and the things that I I I was very fierce about early on in my adult life. I look back at that and I, I realize like I really did not understand how power worked. I really did not understand that. Uh, and now I think that that's a, a constant thing that I think about is like, we don't, we don't win. We don't make gains through being better people, that that's a, a fucking distraction that we make gains through actually building and being willing to exercise power. I think it's a little bit of both because if you because I think part of and I do think that there's a lesson in the um, in the story of the Sindona affair uh, in the sense that they they did they built up uh, quite a bit of power, but it was also elusive because it wasn't real. And they sure. they rode sure. a massive wave. They they rode a massive wave of corruption, though, and the massive wave crashed down on them and it ground them up in its wheels so i think in a sense you know you're right that uh it's important not to be naive about power and how it functions and how it operates um it's also important not to be naive about what the desire for power leads to to an extent um because desire for power is not the same as power and it's and then lastly uh, it's important to recognize like what happens to people who are that ambitious uh, and and yeah. all those rise and fall stories, you know, the Piazza Le Loreto and, and Clara Patacci and, and Mussolini hanging upside down in a gas station, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the, the rise and fall stories of, uh, and it's not just the far right. It's not just financial corruption. It's also left-wing organizations. Absolutely. In, you can't visit, you can't visit a site like Til Sang in Phnom Penh and not realize, like, I mean, you know, walking, Til Sang, for, for those who don't know, is the, is the public school. It's also called like PS21 or something like that. But it's the, it's the public school compound that was converted into a 
detention facility and torture facility for political prisoners under the Khmer Rouge. And you tour that. And I mean, my first reaction, I've been there twice. And like my immediate reaction, reading the sort of like history of the rise of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge and and talk about somebody who was brilliantly cynical. Um, (laughs) My my, my first, uh, uh, to be honest, my first thought was, this guy looks like about eight different people I have known in my life mm. through organizing on the mm-hmm. left, right? And, 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 and my second thought was, thank God that the things I was involved with with them were not successful. <laughs> yeah. No, really. And, and, and it was a real like, moment of cognitive dissonance of just like, why am I grateful that we failed? And it is in part because that you're like you said that desire for power is is not the same as as building power and exercising power, and it sort of absolutely you know is not reducible to a particular political tendency or, or political uh, yeah history. But I think like what we're learning right now because you were talking about you know that a lot of this happened in Italy because of deindustrialization, right? That they they sought out these these spaces and these forms of accumulation and these these mechanisms and whatnot because of deindustrialization. And I think like we saw something very similar happen in the US coming out of the 90s, um, particularly, you know, watching, well, coming out of the 70s, really, like the decline in unionization and all these other sorts of things. And then the flight of industry to offshoring and, and all these other sorts of things. And now I, I think we're starting, it might be too little too late, but we're starting to see I think a swing back in the other direction where the industries and the, uh, the, the spaces where labor occurs within the United States and in Europe to some extent um, that have cropped up, particularly, you know, information industries and whatnot in the wake of deindustrialization are increasingly being organized mm-hmm. again, um, which is a really interesting development, mm-hmm. right? Um, and... I think that that's illustrative of like exactly what we're talking about is that like, you know, there were opportunities for people to have undermined this when it was, when it was sort of in ascendant um, and the points of intervention just weren't apparent. And in this particular moment, the points of intervention or at least certain points of intervention are actually apparent to people, which is pretty goddamn fascinating i mean it's it's a it's a wild moment to to be observing particularly young people oh yeah yeah definitely which again a lot of those social and economic pressures are uh coming to bear uh on our historic moment and providing all of these fascinating analogs i really appreciate you uh being uh coming on this show and giving us your insight because uh i've i haven't yet on this show at least delved into analogies uh with the current situation or with other places around the world uh quite this deeply in any other episode so it's been really kind of a pleasure to sort of get deeply into these these questions and to analyze these systems that kind of empower these these like uh uh mafioso cowboy financial wizard that guy 
uh, starts to like create a criminal empire out of you know totally fraudulent financial dealings it's like wow yeah. <laughs> holy shit and and really geographically my my experience has been being somebody relatively well traveled is that um when it comes to this particular thing that you just described there's nothing new under the sun <laughs> no matter where yeah. you go like really like i mean it if you pay attention for 24 hours you can immediately identify the dynamics because while some of the textures are different and some of the historical tailwinds are different and whatnot, ultimately you see the same sorts of personalities and patterns emerge. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, um, what do you uh, got to plug? Do you have new articles that you've recently done? Stuff coming up? Um, most of what I'm working on right now... Um, one of the things I will plug actually is uh, I've been recently doing some work with uh, a sort of intersectional human rights group here in Thailand called the Minutia Foundation. And I encourage folks to look them up because they're one of the only groups doing, they, they're bilingual, but they are one of the only groups I'm aware of that's doing really spot on critical analysis of human rights concerns in English coming out of Primarily Thailand, they also cover Laos and Cambodia a little bit um, because and Myanmar because there are a lot of migrant workers in Thailand from those countries. Um, I did some work with them a few months back documenting um, uh, the damage in the fifth of a series of fires in a slum in central Bangkok, uh, which appeared to have a pattern. And then through that, I just recently, um, like two weekends ago, I went to um, northeastern Thailand with them to an area near the border with uh, Laos to document uh, indigenous villagers in an area called Pichit who are organizing against an Australian gold mine mm. um, and uh, got to document like collaboration between these different communities who are, are coming up with a, a long-term strategy for for um, undermining the the uh, progress of this mining operation, both in terms of like it being a land grab and it being an ecological disaster, for instance, yeah. for uh, a mango farming association, um, all sorts of things. Um, and so lately, that's where a lot of my work has been been basically doing photography for them. Um, but their work is fucking phenomenal, and I think like if you're interested in it's very difficult if you're an English speaker to get um, a textured sense of the politics here and mm. what's happening here in critical politics mm. here because so much of it happens in the local languages. Mm. Um, but Minutia, I think, is, is one of the best organizations um, through which one can get and glimpse a picture of, of what's happening here and maybe potentially begin to mentally sort of connect that to what's happening elsewhere in the world. Dope. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. This is fun. Yeah. I, I, I love nerding out about this stuff. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love getting a, a sort of like behind the curtain look at sort of things that were ambient in my adolescence that I, I only had a, a very sort of uh, tangential grasp of at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Joshua Stevens. 
journalist extraordinaire, photographer for Minutia, and uh, um, our resident quasi-Sicilian. <laughs> would that it were true I would have a European passport alright All right. well have a good day alright man be Bye well later. ciao ciao and to anybody who's listening please uh, if you have the time give us a five star review on the platform of your choice and Join the Patreon because we have lots of bonus episodes, some data, and some fun stuff uh, for everybody to check out. So um, there's no minimum. You can just sign up. And uh, yeah, otherwise, thanks very much for listening and take care.